Can y'all feel welcome, feel at home? Can we give it up for our, our SLT team? That is our Saturday Life team, our ushers, our greeters. They're led by Anthony and Amanda Hiltz. I see Anthony right there. Is Amanda in here right now? Amanda's probably serving somewhere. Yep, it is her birthday tonight. So she is, is she wearing, a, is she volunteering? Is she wearing a blue shirt? Oh, she's home. It's her birthday. She can do that. But next time you see her, let her know happy birthday and thank Anthony for the work they do. Anybody who's seen a blue shirt, just thank them for the grind they do every week, setting up and then putting everything exactly back how it was. They got to take pictures. They got to put it right back. It's awesome. But we've been in a series called Welcome Home. And we've talked in that series a lot about who we are as a church, who we are as city life from uh, our vision, heaven now and heaven forever, how we take that to our region, um, from everything from that to our pathways, the disciplines we stress as a church, all those things that are a part of our DNA as a church. And if you're new here or maybe you've only been here for a couple weeks, you can find those sermons online at citylifeva backslash Suffolk, and you'll be able to listen to those. But I found something interesting on Netflix. Anthony mentioned Netflix uh, earlier during the announcements. I saw uh, Steph and I were just scrolling through Netflix. How many of y'all actually just do that? Like 30 minutes of just looking at the titles. Thank you, Dustin. Make me feel good, right? The whole my list thing, never use it. But it gives me an excuse to scroll through the titles for 30 minutes and just throw them on my list and never look at them again. But Steph and I were doing that. I think we were eating dinner just looking at the titles on Netflix, and we saw, like, Andy Stanley. And I was like, this... This is a preacher man, right? And he was up at a podium preaching. You can find sermons on there now. Somebody else in here I know mentioned like Stephen Furtick was on there. I was like, that's pretty cool. I don't know why that's not under suggested for me. Obviously, Netflix doesn't know me if they're not suggesting that. But uh, usually when I get on Netflix, usually when Steph and I log on Netflix, it's like Marshawn Lynch. Y'all know why I'm here, right? We got that one show we're logging on to watch. Um, and the thing is, recently, these past few months, been pretty busy in the White House, so uh, binging isn't in our vocabulary. Um, usually I watch one episode with Steph, and then I'm like, all right, I got to go tackle something, send some emails, do whatever, and it always just gets to her. So Valentine's Day, right, I was like, we can go to dinner and a movie, we can do whatever you want. She was like, I want to stay home and binge Netflix. But then she was like, not just any binge. She said, a binge is four episodes or more. I don't even know where she came up with that number. I don't know if it's on Urban Dictionary, but that's what she, she said, four episodes. And because we're weird, we, we stood in the kitchen, we shook on it. So Valentine's Day, we, we binge watched Netflix. After we, we, I made sure we went out for a meal for breakfast, went to, uh, what is it, Egg Bistro? That is my jam. I went there three times in one week. And, and Valentine's Day was sandwiched in the middle. But uh, we binge watched Netflix. How many of you guys uh, are watching a show, have been working your way through a show, and, and what is that show on Netflix? Nobody wants to admit. You know, not binging. There's just some shows you're watching on Netflix, Tara. Gilmore Girls in four weeks. Respect. How many seasons of that are there? Like eight. Okay. Denise. Parenthood and Parks and Rec. Yep. I, I bought, it's probably on my list. <laughs> Emily. Fuller House. That like just came out, right? And the Olsen twins aren't in it, right? Dexter. Anybody else? Hell on Wheels. That's where they, like, they're working on bikes, right? Oh, for real. I'll just go find that and throw it on my list and maybe never look at it again, but hell on wheels. Anybody else? <laughs> well, what Steph and I have been watching, what we binge-watched on Valentine's Day was Prison Break. Anybody ever watched Prison Break? Prison Break came out about a decade ago when I was in college, but it's aged pretty well. There haven't been many moments where I've been like, this 
is so outdated. And if, if you're wondering what it's about, they're breaking out of prison. It's called prison break. So anyways, two things, though, I've noticed that really dated it for me. The first, one cellmate turns to another and in all seriousness says, are you picking up what I'm putting down? And I said, I haven't heard anybody say that since, like, middle school, let alone. I, but I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to start saying that in the middle of my sermons. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Y'all can say amen. You can say yes. You can say whatever. But the thing that, that really just dated it for me is, is the outdated cell phones. Now, it's not quite like the bricks, like, what is it, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, where he's, it's like, it looks like a brick. It's not like the Zach from Saved by the Bell brick. I mean, you could probably substitute those for for dumbbells and get a pretty good burn doing like a P90X workout with those phones. I'm talking about the flip phone, right? My first phone, I was 19. I was a little behind the curve getting a cell phone. I got one at 19 in college. It was the the Samsung. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like ruby red. Everybody had that color too. And that was my first cell phone, this flip phone. And some people still prefer flip phones. And I respect that because those things are indestructible. And can I get an amen? They are cheaper without the data plan, right? But everybody in prison break has a has a little flip phone, and after a while, not only are you like, why does everybody have a flip phone, but, man, my frustration with that show is every time they use their cell phone, they get tapped, so why would you keep using it? But uh, cell phones, they're continuing to find ways to connect people, especially smartphones, right, from texting to calls to direct messaging on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Some of y'all, it's easier to get in touch with you through Facebook message than it is email or a phone call. Like, just message somebody on Facebook. There's apps like Snapchat. There's uh group me, all these different ways that you can contact people. But to me, the most intimate is probably FaceTime. FaceTime because you can literally look at somebody's face. There's something intimate about eye contact, right? And there's a lot of people I talk to that I don't want to FaceTime with. But how many of you guys have, like, grandkids or, like, little nieces and nephews? FaceTime is the jam. Like, when I, when I want to talk to, because they're not going to talk on the phone anyways. But FaceTime, that's cool. You play games. They're always trying to hit the little red button, right? to turn it off, but FaceTime is great, but FaceTime is also easy. Now, probably a little over a year ago now, I was in the office, like 10 a.m., and I, and I get a FaceTime from my brother, and I'm like, why is he FaceTiming me at 10 a.m.? This, like, this must be an emergency, and uh, so I'm like, why would he FaceTime me in an emergency? So I, I click accept, obviously, because it's from his number, and this is what comes up. It's my, my nephew, who's not yet even two, just on the other end staring at me. And I just tried for about 30 seconds to get a word out of him, but all I got was maybe like a little, like half smile and an eyebrow raise. And then about 20 to 30 seconds in, of course, he finds the red button like they all do, and, and he hung up. But, of course, I answered. And I was just thinking, like, man, when I was that age, I was, like, unwinding VHS tapes and eating sand out of sandboxes. My nephew, who wasn't even two years old yet, somehow found FaceTime on an iPad, gave me a little head nod, and then hung up on me, Right? <laughs> But with all these cell phones, all these upgrades to wireless communication, um, no matter what comes out next, what, what cell phone, what app, no matter what, what Apple does to Trailblaze and Samsung does to keep up, no matter what comes, the number one most important form of wireless communication we will ever have is prayer. Because it doesn't just connect us to people, it connects us to our Heavenly Father. It connects us to God in intimate ways. Some of the most intimate communication and prayer between man and God in Scripture is found in Exodus 33. So if you've got your Bible, you can dog ear the page of Exodus 33 because that's where we're going to park it for the next few weeks. If you've got a version app, you can bookmark it. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a version app. Guess what? Here in Suffolk, we have Bibles under our pew. 
And if you sit in the same spot, maybe you can dog ear that page in that Bible. Just don't tell faith I told you to do that. But Exodus 33, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14. While y'all do that, I'm going to get a little situated. Exodus 33, verses 7 through 14. It says this. It says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. So up here I've got just portions of it. Here i got the hefty meat. It goes on to say, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So this, this passage is part of a greater narrative that we're going to dig into tonight. But that passage is so rich. Because who wouldn't want this kind of intimate communion with God? Face to face. It's like he's FaceTime with the throne room of heaven. And that's not to be taken literally, but it's figuratively speaking to the intimacy that Moses had with God. It says, as one speaks to a friend. That's how God spoke to Moses. There's so many analogies in scripture, whether it's clay in the hands of a potter, right? Sheep being led by a shepherd. Servants relating to their master. God is your friend. It's powerful. It should be powerful to you, no matter how long you've been saved, that we have access and communion with God. But anybody that's been in a friendship knows that it's a two-way street. And if I'm, if I'm honest, competing with my desire to know God personally are a hundred different pursuits. And sometimes God can just become another face in the crowd, just another pursuit on my list of pursuits. But we have to prioritize God's presence. Because the other side of that coin is when Jesus comes, we don't want to just be another face in the crowd to Jesus, right? Come on. We've got to prioritize his presence because newsflash, life doesn't get any less hectic. How many of you would say that you're less busy now than you were five years ago? Less busy. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe if you retired, maybe if something like that happened, but life just gets busier. Like life is busy now for me and stuff, but I always in the back of my mind know that like two years from now, we're going to have a, a little adopted son running around the house within two years. I know it's going to get busier then, right? And I'm going to have to reprioritize the presence of God. So we're going to look at how tonight. We're going to look at why tonight. But first I want to lay down the setting. Again, the framework, the foundation of this passage. And Exodus 33 is embedded in Exodus 32 through 34. Anybody that knows basic math could probably figure that out. But 32 through 34 is what theologians and scholars look at as, as, a, as a narrative unto itself. And this was, a, this was a climax in Scripture. You know, I remember the first time, you don't really have to worry about this with Netflix, but I remember the first time there was like a mid-season finale, and like the show was coming to a climax. All this stuff was up in the air, and then Steph like whispers in my ear, you know it's not on again until February, right? And I was like, what? Like, are you serious? And this is one of those climaxes in Scripture. Mount Sinai 
in Exodus is where the Exodus story and the path of the entire Bible hits a pivot point. The Exodus story, maybe you're familiar, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Here at Mount Sinai, they, they camped for 10 months to meet with God. And the entire purpose of this Exodus was to step into heightened relationship with God through a covenant and the building of a tabernacle for sacrifice, worship, and experiencing the presence of God in a new way. And if you look at the Bible, God had been relatively silent from Eden till now. He spoke to individuals, right? He wrestled with Jacob. He spoke to Abraham, made a covenant with him. He spoke to Joseph through dreams. But here God gathers his people and speaks to them. And God isn't looking just for a people, but for a body. A people that would know his presence and carry his presence to usher his grace into the world. Because whether the world realizes it or not, ever since Eden, there's been a hunger to know God, a hunger to see his face, a hunger to taste his presence. And we express that in a million different ways, but it boils down to a hunger for God's presence. So God called upon a people to represent him as ambassadors. And it's why they entered into this covenant agreement. And in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, it says this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Zach, could you hit the next slide for me just so they can have that verse? It's Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. So Moses goes up onto the mountain to initiate this covenant. And he's gone for 40 days, a month and then some. And how many of you guys know what happens, right? The Israelites, they build the calf, the golden calf. We've learned about this in Sunday school. We learned about this in church. But so often we're told that they're breaking the first commandment, that they've, they've built an entirely separate God altogether, and they're worshiping that. But biblical scholars that are way smarter than me and have spent way more time in the text than me, they say, well, really they're breaking the second commandment. They, they lost Moses, and they're trying to make some kind of image that will conjure back up the presence of God. Because Moses, for them, was their go-to with God's presence. And he was gone for 40 days, and they're getting a little frustrated. It's like a child whose parent is late picking them up. At first, there's anxiety, then worry, then all-out fear, and then anger. Like, before they come to Aaron to make this calf, they're like, where's this fellow Moses? Right? I can just see him cocking their head, like, where's this fellow Moses at? And whether the world realizes it or not. It, too, is driven by this panicked search for God's presence. Maybe you're driven like that as you step in here tonight, and you don't even realize it. I spent 10 years of my life searching for whatever would fill that void that could only be filled by God's presence. So often, we don't know the solution, so we settle for what's around us. It's what the Israelites did. Their choice of a calf, it wasn't arbitrary. It was common imagery in the Middle East in their worship that a calf or a bowl would function as a, a pedestal or like a seat for the God to sit or stand upon. So it's almost like they were trying to create for themselves an Ark of the Covenant that would conjure up the presence of God, but they were doing it all wrong. Not only did they make this calf, but they started pointing to it saying, like, this brought us up out of Egypt. Just, we shake our heads, man, at this debacle, this idiocy, whatever you want to call it. But how often do we, even as believers in less obvious ways, create substitutes for God's presence? You know, Moses was a mediator for the Israelites. How often do we accept one for ourselves, a substitute who, who gives us our Bible, our vision, our purpose, whether it's a podcast, a pastor, or if you're young, maybe your parents. And then we end up like the church in Corinth where it's like, I follow Paul or I follow Peter or I follow Apollos. But Paul said, hey, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. 
there's no scripture in the Bible where it says God is like your great-grandfather, right? He wants to be your father. Prioritizing the presence of God personally is so important. And if we're not careful as well, God's blessings can sub in for his presence. The calf was made out of God's blessings. It wasn't just some gold they found like just laying around. This was the stuff they pilfered Egypt with. Egypt gave it to them as they were leaving. It was the blessings of God that they used to make this calf. And, and we've got our own property wars going on, but it's, it's not a show on Netflix. It's the property and the blessings in our life that battle for the throne in our hearts that, that we look to for fulfillment when we need to look vertically. And you know what's so funny is I often read scripture. Like I'm going through the Bible reading plan. I'm reading this passage earlier this year, and I so often identify with the hero in the story, right? Going through Genesis, I'm Jacob, right? I'm a uh, I'm Abraham. I'm Joseph. I'm not his brothers, right? And you read this passage, and it's like, yeah, I'm Moses. I'm up on the mountaintop with God. But if I look at my life, more often than I'd like to admit, I'm a part of that crowd that's found a substitute for God's presence. And at times, I'm a lot less like Moses and his intimate relationship with God than I would like to admit. And I've had to learn again and again, like I said before, to to treat God's presence and reestablish it as a priority. There is a war going on for your heart. Things try to climb onto the throne where his presence should be. And uh, I'm a doer. So how many doers in the house, right? The church has doers. God bless them. Church has relators. God bless them. Prayers, right? The church needs all of that. We're a body. But every one of those kinds of people needs to prioritize the presence of God. And it's hard sometimes for a doer. Like, I'm not just a doer. I was an English major. So when I write a sermon, I'm like, how could I say this point better? Right? My points have probably been remixed like 47 times. And finally last night, God is like, why don't you stop worrying about what you're going to preach and start practicing what you're going to preach? And I was like, oh, okay. Found a room, turned the lights off, listened to that new Young and Free because it's great. Got low volumes and just relaxed, prayed, stepped into God's presence. Come on, we got to learn to prioritize his presence. And again, we'll, in coming weeks, we're going to look at the, 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 the how, the what, the when. But tonight, I just, I just want to look at the why. Why prioritize God's presence? Know your why, right? That's a, a quote. I think RG3 wore a shirt that said that. It didn't work out so good for him. He's probably about to get cut by the Redskins. But for us, it's important to know your why. And to prioritize God's presence, that means it has to be important to us. So, so why is God's presence important to me? There's people in here from all backgrounds of life. Again, there's doers, there's relators, there's prayers. Why is it important for me? But two keys have motivated me in my life as I've had to again and again just reemphasize and reprioritize the presence of God. The first is that God's presence makes us. It makes us. Makes us who we are. And we'll be looking again at Exodus 33. Throughout this sermon series. And it's so easy again to say, man, I want that. I want a relationship with God where it's like I'm talking to him face to face. Where it's like, again, it's like I'm FaceTiming the throne room of God. But the question is, when did that become important for Moses? Why was that so important to Moses? How did he get there? Where did it start? So tonight, real quick, right now, I want to look at uh, Exodus 3. It's where... Moses is called by God to lead the Israelites at the burning bush. And you don't have to turn there. You can stay parked in Exodus 33. But it's a passage that's always resonated with me, if I'm honest. First of all, because when I look at my life, when God intersected it, like he did with Moses, Moses wasn't pursuing God. He was just out there on the hill, tending, right, flocks. God was pursuing him. And tonight, maybe you've come here tonight, and you're not really in hot pursuit. You didn't come with a lot of expectation, but every person in here, 
God's pursuing you. Whether you've known him for 10 years or 10 minutes, God is pursuing your heart. He wants to be present in your life. But then the second reason that this passage has always resonated with me is for the longest time, right after I got saved for about a year there, people would prophesy over me, getting in pastors, leaders that essentially you're, you're called to ministry. And multiple times, and I would just think, you don't know me, right? I just graduated from William & Mary, not with some degree in divinity. I got saved as a senior, so I was an art and English major. Like, what am I going to do, sculptures for Jesus on stage while I preach? Like, what? how is this going to work? And then I looked at my life, too. I got saved as a senior in college. My whole college experience, all my high school experience was just debauchery. I'm like, are you sure you've got the right guy? And then finally, I was at youth camp. I don't remember the year. I'd have to look back. But I was there with the youth as a leader, and a pastor pulled me aside during a time where you're supposed to be praying for students. And he pulled me over, and he was like, this isn't what he said, but this is what I received in the spirit, right? He mentioned Moses at the burning bush, and he said, look, God is calling you. He's highlighted it. He's underlined it. And at this point, it's becoming a lot like Moses at the burning bush. He's frustrated. He's getting angry, right? Because I knew at Moses at the burning bush, Moses asks no less than five questions. Like, you sure you got the right guy? You sure you can't do this? You sure you can't do that? And eventually it just says, yo, God is getting fed up. But his first question is what I want to look at. His first question is, who am I? And it's a, a reluctant, albeit reasonable question. Because when you think about what the exodus was, this was kind of a big deal. This was not going to be easy. This was going to take nothing short of the hand of God in his life to pull off. And he's asking, what makes me qualify for this? Why me? And I love God's answer. God's answer is, I am with you. Hey, I'm present. You know, somebody came to me and, and asked me why they were qualified for this or that role in ministry. I might begin to look at their qualities, their resume, and be like, well, because of this, because of that, because of this, because of that. God, he doesn't, he doesn't look at Moses' resume. He doesn't try to boost Moses' confidence. He just says, look, I'm with you. He doesn't try to build Moses up or talk about how strong he was, but he says, look, my presence, almighty God, is going to be with you. My presence is with you. And, and like Moses, I'm a vessel. Like Moses, you're a vessel. God wants to use you. You've got influence that makes you a leader. But if I examine my vessel in all honesty, I'm a broken one, right? I need God's presence in me, not just for somebody else, but for myself. Because I'm becoming more like Jesus daily, and I'm going to be doing that till the day I die. I'm a work in progress. So I need God to heal me. And again, maybe, maybe that's you tonight. Maybe that's the step you need. You need God's presence in you so that he can heal some areas of, of your life and of your heart. And that's not even in my notes, but I think God's speaking to somebody tonight. And outside of God's presence, though, even as a vessel, I'm empty. I might be good to look at. I might look good in a china cabinet. But outside of God's spirit in me, I'm not going to make an eternal impact. And then after Sinai, right, God after Sinai, God after the Israelites screwed up, he says, look, I'm going to let you go to the promised land. I'm going to let you go on this journey, but I'm not going to be with you. And it's this threat of God no longer leading and dwelling amongst his people after Sinai that shook Moses to the core. God's presence wasn't something that Moses entered into now and again. It was a defining point of his entire life. You look at Exodus 33 and the stuff leading up to it. Moses had already been in some dark seasons, right, challenging this Pharaoh who was hard-hearted again and again who really could have killed him. Being caught between chariots that were looking to capture him in a sea that could have drowned him. But through all of that, God was present, 
God was speaking. God was moving, come on, in and through him as God's presence was with him. You look at Moses, his life was a lot like a lot of our lives. We have those mountaintop experiences, but Moses spent a lot of time in the valleys. You look at Moses' life, a lot of his life was spent in the wilderness. But just like David in the valley, God's presence is what kept him going. So the potential for God to withdraw his presence shook Moses to the core because it was his core. It was fundamental to his life ever since God responded to the question, who am I with I am with you? And, and maybe you'd object. Maybe you'd be like, well, I've read my Bible, Justin. In Psalm 139, it says that, you know, even if we try to run away from God, he's there. You can't win hide and seek with God because he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And that's true. But in this series... And in this passage, when we talk about the presence of God, we're not talking about the metaphysical presence of God. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about the relationship we have with God. Now, don't look at the person next to you. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you in here have been in a, a, a disagreement or a confrontation with somebody you love? Right? If you've ever been in a relationship and there's been a rift in a relationship, you realize it doesn't matter how close the person is, where the person is. If you've ever been in a relationship with anyone and crossed through conflict, you know this reality that you can be two feet from somebody physically and miles apart relationally. God is threatening himself, or excuse me, he is threatening to distance himself relationally from Moses and the Israelites. But then again, maybe you say, well, Justin, it says right here that they'll still get the blessing. So what's the big deal? They're still going to accomplish the mission. They're still going to make it to the promised land and get the promise that was promised to Abraham. God would still grant them victory. God would, he would still bless them. He just wouldn't be with them. And that's where, if we're honest, we get stuck often in our lives, more than I would like to admit, enjoying the blessings of God outside of the, the presence of God. Let me just read this. It says, if I'm not constantly feeding my soul, on the reality of the presence, promises, and provisions of God. I will ask the people, situations, and things around me to be the God they can never be. And like Israel, the golden calf, I will always come up empty. We may not hit disaster like the Israelites, but we'll drift. We can get identity amnesia where we just try to connect with things horizontally to establish what we need that we can only find vertically in the presence of God. With the wrong perspective, we can get comfortable with what terrified Moses, having the blessings of God outside the presence of God. When I was an early believer, I've always listened to hip-hop. So in Christian hip-hop, one of the things they do is they'll sample, like, a pastor's podcast or, like, a quote that he's saying, the audio, and they'll throw it into one of their songs. It enhances it. It's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie on my, like, fleshly bucket list. That might be on there. I'll have to deal with that at an altar one day, but that'd be cool. Be sampled on a hip-hop track. But there's this question that this pastor posed at the beginning of this Shylin track. Anthony knows who that is. But he, he asked this question, and, and I'll ask it right now. Would you be satisfied to go to heaven, have everybody there in your family that you want there, have all the health and restoration of your prime, and everything you dislike about yourself fixed, have every recreation you've ever dreamed available to you, and have infinite resources of money to spend? Would you be satisfied if God weren't there? So I heard that as a young believer, and I paused. But Moses heard about a situation very similar to that, stepping into the promised land without the presence of God. And he doesn't hesitate when he says in Exodus 33, verses 15 through 16, he says, look, if your presence does not go with us, then do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Again, if you guys could hit next on the slides. Moses is saying, look, God's presence makes us who we are. What else distinguishes me from everyone else in the world? How many of you guys, um, I used to go to, to Buffalo Wild Wings. I had some good friends of mine, Cord Walls, David Godwin, some of you guys know those people. They used to work at B-dubs, and they were waiters. So I would, I would go there because I also love wings. Don't tell them I said this, but about as much as I like them, I love wings. So uh, you would eat at B-dubs, and they had those little consoles. I don't remember how much it cost, but you could slide some money in there and play some games because they were waiting tables, so it's not like I was with them all the time. And uh, I was a young bachelor, didn't have a wife to go home to, so I would just hang out, play the games. And uh, the... <laughs> The, the game I would always play is, have you ever seen it where there's, there's two pictures next to each other that are almost identical, and you have to, to pick out the 10 or 12 or a couple differences. This might be one of them, right? How many of y'all, like, already found one? Something terror. You say it. Prove it. Yeah, there's no lines on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could cheat. I, I would tell you once, but I, I've looked at it all day, so... Um, <laughs> we don't have time to go into it, but that's what I'm talking about. When you look at two pictures, you have to pick out the differences. So now imagine this. Imagine that you've got a picture, a life of a Christian. Sorry, I'm going to take it away so you don't keep staring at it. And a person in the world. <laughs> you've got a, a believer over here, and then you've got somebody over here from, that's just an atheist, but they have high moral standards, right? And, and both of them probably, they're not cheating on their wife. They're not murdering anybody. They're probably not cussing people out all the time. They're, they're probably generous. They're good stewards. What, what's the distinguishing factor between them? Moses would say, hey, it's the presence of God. You know what? When, when God's in you, there's fruits of the spirit that distinguish us. Knowing our maker, knowing our why, and knowing Jesus Christ distinguishes us. As Christians, as believers, as God's people, without the presence of God, are we really his people? You know, Jesus said that at the end times, you know, there will be some people that did some amazing feats in his name. And he would say, I never knew you. I never knew you. It's, it's like the Israelites, if they walked into that promised land without the presence of God, would he really have known them? That's why this phrase, I will not go with you, was equally chilling to Moses. Because to him, again, the presence of God is what sets us apart. And again, at Sinai, at Mount Sinai, God was calling his people to himself to set them apart through a covenant. It points back to a a previous one. In many ways, it's a continuation of that covenant. At the beginning of Exodus, God responds to the cries of the Israelites. And it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And what was a part of that covenant with Abraham? God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. That's Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. It says, I will make you into a great nation. We hear echoes of this in that passage from Exodus 19 that we read where he says, you'll be a priestly kingdom. You'll be my nation in the earth. And then we see it culminate in the New Testament church, specifically at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit makes, marks God's people with his presence. He marks them physically with tongues of fire. And this was interesting to me, so bear with me. I'm going to throw it at y'all. Y'all might think, oh, that's deep, right? But Jewish tradition, as I was studying, it has long said, again, this is Jewish tradition, said that the whole world was silent at Sinai and the voice of God divided into 70 voices and 70 tongues and that those tongues looked like sparks of flame flying from hammer's blows. 
They spoke of tongues of fire that went out to all nations so all people could hear his voice in a language they could understand and be invited in. Again, this is Jewish tradition. It's not doctrine. It's not the Bible. But when the Jews would have gathered for the traditional Pentecost celebration, they would have looked back to this account of Sinai in Genesis. And they would have read about this invitation to be a kingdom of priests that carry God's presence. And his Holy Spirit, right, the presence of God in us, it marked them in a way that for them would have pointed right back towards Sinai. And even for us, if we didn't know about that tradition, there's other stuff in Scripture that points back there as well. How many people were lost at Sinai when God punished them with that plague? 3,000. How many people were added to the church at Pentecost? 3,000. It's almost as if as, as Luke, the author of Acts, is being inspired by God to write it, that he wanted his church to know that, that Sinai was not forgotten. The covenant was alive. What was lost was being reclaimed. That his presence was embracing his people again. That Jesus had opened a door, tore a veil, and that God's presence in the form of the Holy Spirit wanted to live in us. He wanted to up the access to his presence. No longer just attaching to a place like the tabernacle that was planned at Sinai or the temple that went after, but really attaching to people. We see this, Jesus pointing to this when he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she asks him, well, do I have to go to the temple to worship? He talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that points forward to this moment in Acts, that his presence, it embraces us. But his presence doesn't just embrace us, it empowers us with purpose. It empowers us with the purpose to go. In Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's almost echoes of all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by them. Not only does God's presence make us who we are, but it marks us. It marks us with purpose. When you're reading through Exodus and Leviticus, God asks for things to be set apart again and again. The place he met with Moses at Mount Sinai was to be set apart. Aaron and his sons, who were going to be the the priests, were to be set apart. These items in the tabernacle that he was going to bless and be present on and in were to be set apart. And then you get to the New Testament church after Pentecost and Acts, and the Holy Spirit fills God's people, fills his church. They're called out. And I love that in Acts 13, as Paul and Barnabas get ready to leave, it says they're, they're set apart for ministry. For the first time, a group of people was accepting God's invitation to be royal priests that would carry his presence to the world. I love that in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's no other passage in the New Testament that echoes and points back to the terms God has for the Israelites like this passage in the New Testament. With Jesus as the foundation, the church was the fulfillment and the continuation of Israel's call as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And see, the thing about priests was is is they carried this privilege of direct access to God's presence with them. Now, for your, your regular, ordinary Jew who heard this verse, read this letter penned by Paul, that would have been mind-blowing. That, hey, you have direct access to the presence of God. He wants to anoint you as a holy nation, anoint you as a royal priesthood, as God's special possession. But again, as you read 1 Peter 2.9, it's not just about them, as we find again and again in the Bible. This word declare means to tell out, to publish abroad. God's presence isn't just about how it makes us and defines us. It's how it it marks us to declare him. His presence 
doesn't just make us who we are, but it gives us purpose. It's why we prioritize God's presence. When you look at the Bible, and you look at how God's working through his church, we see again and again that the people God uses most are often the people who spend the most time in his presence. The people that spend the most time in God's presence are the people that he uses most often. And there's good reason for that. Because time spent in God's presence sets us apart for his purposes. You know, you spend time in God's presence praying. You've probably heard it said before, it doesn't always change the situation, but it changes you. You spend enough time in God's presence, it will give you the passion, it will give you the perspective where you can now go out and be the change. You see it in Acts again and again. Uh, that they would come together, they would pray together, they would worship together. And I was reading Acts earlier this, this week, studying for this, where, where they, they came to God and there was all this persecution, but they didn't pray for the persecution to go away. They, they asked for boldness to face it and preach all the more boldly, right? They were asking for the perspective and the passion they needed to go out and be what God needed for them to be. And it's something also in this passage in Exodus 33 that we're going to be parked in for a couple of weeks so easy to read over that it says, as it's talking about the intimate relationship of, of Moses with God, it, it says Joshua, he stayed at the tent. You know, Joshua didn't just prioritize the presence of God. He was persistent about the presence of God. He lingered a little longer. He continued to go into God's presence. And you know what's powerful? It's like when Moses was there, it said everybody was at their tent, they're watching, they're worshiping. But when Moses left, all those people went back about their business, Joshua was still lingering in the presence of God, still pursuing the presence of God. I think a lot of times it's easy for us when, when people are around, they're a part of it, right? There's a, a congregation around us. We're in a worship service. It's, it's easy to write, value the presence of God, prioritize the presence of God in that moment. But then everybody goes home, and you go home, and is it still a priority? For Joshua, it was. He was, you look at who marched Israel into the promised land and the promises of God, it was Joshua. And he was so saturated with purchase, purpose because he spent so much time just soaking in the presence of God. Because, again, for God, the journey wasn't just about walking into some promised land. It was about walking in his presence and being a part of his redemptive plan. Not just in this church, but in all churches, as a church daily, we have to prioritize God's presence. We're meant to be a part of his redemptive plan here in Suffolk, the around areas, and even through this 2020 vision, beyond that. You know, Joshua and the Israelites, they had to cross the Jordan River to get into the promised land. And as we were planning for this plant and started praying about it, started finding out who was on the team, getting excited about it, I just kept going back to the Israelites. They too had to cross some water to get to where they were going. We had to cross some water to get to Newport News to here. And what Joshua said to the Israelites as they're about to step into that promised land, is that he said, consecrate yourselves. Because tomorrow God's going to do some amazing things among you. That word consecrate means to set apart. Come on, let's prioritize the presence of God. God's got a redemptive plan and a redemptive purpose for this region, for us to do through city life in all three of our campuses. But if you remove the presence of God from a church, it'll become a museum that celebrates all the things God did in the past. But with the presence of God in the church, come on, we'll continue to celebrate all he's doing as we walk in his presence. You know what? Before anybody that we meet in this region that doesn't know God can step into a relationship that is so intimate that it could be described as face-to-face, -face, they're going to see our face. We might be inviting them to church, telling them about our church, telling them about what Jesus has done for us. What about our face is going to set us apart?
Come on, let it be the presence of God. If I could have the worship team come up. Come on, let it be the presence of God that, that makes us, that marks us for God's purposes. Next week, we're going to get into John chapter 1. We're going to dig around in that. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it reads literally that the word became flesh. And it says dwelt among us in many translations, but literally in the Greek, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched a tent among us. I don't don't know if it's the message version, but somebody said, hey, he moved into the neighborhood, speaking to the intimacy. But this word tabernacle is significant because, again, you look at what God wanted to initiate at Mount Sinai in Exodus. It was to establish God's presence with his people. The tabernacle was the supreme place for sacrifices and experiencing God's presence. But Jesus Christ came to us to be the supreme sacrifice so that we could always have access to God's presence. He's the supreme mediator. Again, Paul says there's one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. But tonight I want to close with this passage. It's in Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 4. It's verses 14 through 16, and this is the message version. But if we could all stand as we read it and we get ready to worship. It says, now that we know what we have, Jesus This great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. You know, FaceTime, there's an app for that. Establishing a relationship with God that is so intimate that it feels like we're FaceTiming with the presence and the throne room of God. It was a sacrifice for that. Jesus died so that we don't have to stand passively by while somebody else accesses the presence of God for us. He died so that we didn't have to stand passively back and think that this priestly calling to carry his presence to the world was for somebody else. Jesus died so that passion and perspective could replace that passivity in our lives. The problem isn't whether there's available access. It's whether we avail ourselves to that access. It's whether we make it a priority. God's presence is available to us now. Let's step into that presence now and praise. Come on, let's do it now and worship. Come on, let's worship together. Thank you, Jesus.